2: episode of At The Margin. Today's intro comes from the Kingdom. You can hear the Kerry waves in the background, the Atlantic waves I should say. Um, so today's episode is on energy poverty. I have Barra Roundtree and Michelle Barrett and myself discussing a recent paper that we released discussing energy poverty in Ireland, how it has progressed over the past 30 odd years or so, and how recent energy price changes have impacted households across the income distribution with a particular focus on those in energy poverty. This is an interesting chat. We go through the drivers of energy poverty, what sort of, what is associated, what socioeconomic economic groups are associated with uh, more burdensome impact Of uh, recent energy price changes. I'll leave it there. Uh, I found it an interesting discussion. It's one of the rare occasions where I get to talk about research that I've been involved in so um, I felt like I was speaking from the both sides of my mouth sometimes but anyway hope you enjoy it and uh, talk soon. All right, guys. Okay, well, thanks for coming on. And um, I always say to people who are who are doing an energy-related uh, topic that uh, you have the short straw because I can answer the questions as well as ask them. But in this case, it's even more the case because I was involved in the project. But um, So we're talking about energy poverty and deprivation and how it, you know the impact in Ireland and the impact of the recent price changes. And so I suppose the first thing is this project, how did it come about? And this is something that the Community Foundation for Ireland were interested in and they approached you, Barrett, just to say maybe we should do a bit of research on energy poverty, but... uh I suppose this is something that was of interest before we, uh, before the recent price changes came about.
3: Yeah, so I suppose we, we'd started, um, Community Foundation for Ireland came to us at the SRI and wanted to, to see more research done in the area of energy deprivation and poverty. And so I think that was something that already, Niall, you had been doing work on for the, um, uh, the, the Barrington Lecture given to the Statistical and Social Inquiry Society of Ireland to get that mouthful out, um, back about a year and a half ago, I think. Um uh, was that long ago? Yeah, I think it was that long ago. But um, so I suppose we knew we'd been doing some work on that and we'd done some work, as well separately uh, in the tax welfare and pension team here at the ESRI on, on kind of carbon taxes and compensation options. And then the Community Foundation approached us. But well, really, as you say, it was kind of before any of the big increase in prices that this was kind of underway. So it was kind of work that happened to be under, just happened to be ongoing, I suppose, at the time then when it became even more policy relevant. Um, but that's kind of, I suppose, the, the background to it. But I suppose then what, what we tried to do in it then was to, to build on what had been done before until maybe the first bit of the report then. It's really about kind of uh, historical patterns of energy deprivation and poverty.
2: Yeah, so like I suppose the Barrington was more a case of looking at um, expenditure. So expenditure-based energy poverty... When you measure energy poverty as a, a proportion of income, how it relates to different socioeconomic groups, who's more inclined to experience this? And then I suppose the idea was to compare that to energy deprivation, where it's a case of well, if you're faced with burdensome energy costs, who tends to respond by maybe cutting back on it, uh, as opposed to maybe just bearing the brunt of that cost and you know maybe cutting back in other ways, other expenditures? What we did there is we took the Household Budget Survey, which was able to tell us about energy expenditure-based poverty. So we're looking at expenditures as a por- proportion of income. Who tends to incur that sort of energy poverty? And we compare that then to maybe the SILK, where it's like uh, self-reported measures of deprivation. And Michelle, you did a lot of work there on the, the self-reported type deprivation. Maybe you could tell us a bit about what exactly self-reported deprivation is. or
0: Yes, yeah, so we looked at... Um it in, we looked at energy deprivation in the Living in Ireland survey and the Silk survey. And basically what they asked there is they ask: are you unable to heat your home due to an inability uh, to afford it or due to basically lack of adequate infrastructure to heat your home in your house?
2: So it's a more a case of people who can't really afford the adequate heat or for some reason maybe perhaps in the structure of the house, can you... Uh, do you have problems i suppose heating your home
3: and even i suppose just one on the headline rates one of the things that kind of stood out is that while both energy uh, poverty as measured by spending more than 10 percent of your income including electricity on, on 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 those costs and energy deprivation which is not being able to afford as michelle said to keep your home adequately heated for, for either of those reasons both of those had kind of been declining over the the 90s and 2000s and so <clears throat> we've gotten to this was just before the recession started uh quite a low level so uh, um about five percent on some of the deprivation measures and then a little bit higher about but a bit over ten percent uh, on the energy poverty measures but um then what you really see and one of the really striking things is that and kind of as you say kind of gets at that these two things are kind of these two measures are picking up slightly different things is that over the course of the great recession you see a big increase in rates yeah. of energy deprivation, um, which then starts to come back down again after uh, as recovery kind of kicks off, where there isn't that much of a change in the share who are spending more than 10% of their income on electricity or wasn't over the recession. Now, part of that was you know incomes were falling, but also uh, energy prices that fell a little bit over that time and then yeah. kind of reversed that. So so, so there's kind of, I suppose, those two measures kind of pick up on different different aspects. Um, uh, but again, and, and Michelle, so that then was talking about some of those groups there that w- where it does stand out that that you know some groups see much more risk of energy deprivation some groups at risk of energy poverty and maybe that tells us a little bit different about how um, about the challenges I suppose that those different groups of households face
2: yeah like and the thing about it is like it, it's the sort of it's the headline rate and it's descriptive um so it's very hard to actually say precisely why we saw this sort of this sort of drop but it gives you enough I suppose, foundation to maybe explore it a bit more. And the one question I would, I would that came to mind to me was, okay, we see this jump during the, the recessionary period f- amongst deprivation. We didn't really see it for energy poverty. And, you know, okay, well, the data we don't see, we don't get as much data when it comes to energy poverty, so maybe we can't see that as much. But... I wonder, is it the case that when you're faced with this constraint, like what you get for a recession, and maybe this is one of the ways people would be t- tend to put, cut back. So I wonder, does that say something about how people respond when it comes to, you know, faced with with a constraint like this?
0: Yeah, well, we've seen that much of the increase during the Great Recession was driven by increases in the rate of energy deprivation for those not at risk of poverty. And we've also seen an increase for renters as well as homeowners, but with renters at a far higher level and renters tend to be younger, and they might uh, cut back on their expenditure on heat in order to accommodate expenditure on other goods and services whereas if you're a homeowner and you have a family or you're living with an older person you're thinking of the other people uh, in your household that you're responsible for so there might be just kind of like generational differences in the types of people that are renters and homeowners as well.
3: Um, yes one of the things is that also stands out is that um you know you also see these kind of differences in broader measures of uh, poverty and deprivation so during, you know, if you, if you look at what as, uh, it was often called the at-risk of poverty rate, and, and that actually didn't change that much during the recession. Um, and, and part of that was because middle incomes were kind of falling. So there was, you know, the, the poverty line was, was, was falling. So there was fewer people below yeah. it, but had you held the poverty line fixed. Um, but then de- these are kind of measures of deprivation, which are more, you know, just self-reported things about can you afford to keep your home adequate warm or more? You know, there, there, there's broader measures as well in terms of wider material deprivation. And we did also see over the recession, and, and from that point of view, there was much sharper increase, and that that was much more responsive. Is um, so that maybe going kind to of say something about how we measure poverty and how we and, and how we measure dep- deprivation? But then one would the, suppose that the, the the shortcomings um, uh, um, of, of those deprivation measures is that you can't really provide real time. You know, it, it's harder to kind of simulate the impact of uh, uh, policy measures on those because you can't kind of construct the counterfactual. Um, whereas with income, we have tools like the, the micro simulation tool here at the ESRI switch, um, which, which allows us to kind of say, well, if policy did X, then what would rates of energy poverty be? Whereas you can't really do the same with, with material me- deprivation measures, including energy deprivation. So they, again, they kind of pointed at interesting... And different things, but there, there's kind of maybe cons- more constraints on what you can do in terms of d- deprivation, in terms of modelling some of those those kind of counterfactual scenarios.
2: Yeah. So, like, if we, so, I suppose the big thing here is you get you get a survey and it tells you a snapshot of that moment in time. But if you want to project it in th- into the future. Um, it's very easy to project maybe expenditures given certain things change. You can when you're dealing with numbers, it's very easy to simulate that. When you're dealing with words, it's uh, very difficult to see what the counterfactual is. So, um, if you're looking forward, then I suppose the one thing is you want to be focusing on the numbers, and that's where the next section of the paper was, perhaps to look at well, this was energy poverty and deprivation maybe historically going back way back to to the nineties and up to maybe twenty fifteen twenty sixteen. And we saw these patterns as they went through those periods. And then we want to see, well, what does it look like now? Maybe 2022 or as close as we can get to 2022. And um, that's where you did all the sort of magic trickery-pokery with the, with, with the micro-simulation bar. Um, maybe do you want to take us through what sort of method, you, how you sort of upgraded maybe the expenditures from the last snapshot we had in 2015-16 to maybe what we had in, in, in more recent times?
3: What the part of the report, and maybe part of the report that's picked up most in the media last week was was about, was trying to kind of look at a nowcast of where are rates of energy deprivation now and what have recent price increases done to both those levels of energy poverty but also uh, the impact on people's households. And one of the the, the downsides there in in terms of the the data that's available is that that the last household budget survey was collected in 2015-16. And since then lots of stuff has changed. changed. We've had, um, you know, several years of income growth, so 2015-16 we're still recovering from the recession. Uh, incomes were still below their pre-recession peak. Now they're, or by the stage of the pandemic at least, they, they were they were above that. So I suppose there, there was kind of a lack of any real-time information or information, you know, later than 2015-16 about the levels of, of, of energy poverty. Energy deprivation, we had some more recent information collected in Silk, in, in but only really running up to 2020, so before the current onset of prices. So again, really for policymakers, I suppose they need to be in a position where they have some idea of well how big how large are these impacts not just on average but across different types of households and um, who are those households that may be worst affected and what does that maybe tell us about how we might want to design the policy response so that was really where this kind of report was motivated at trying to address those questions and the way we did that then was to again rely on switch and um, the esri tax and benefit micro simulation model and and so what we did in in, in terms of that was to take the uh, latest data that we ha- we have running with, with with switch which is the 2019 survey data but then upgraded to 2022 terms and then impute into that levels of, of, of expenditure. So, kind of take the previous um, relationship between levels of income, demographics, and uh, patterns of spending, impute into our silk our, our data levels of expenditure, and then use that and, and the kind of more up to date kind of demographic and, and, and income information that we have in that to be able to say, well, Given those imputations, what of the uh, what, and, and predicted levels of, 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 of expenditure? What would have recent price increases done? Uh, and so then, what we took the way we calculated that was to take the recent CSO um, uh, sub-indices for various prices of uh, energy types. You and then look at the changes in those, uh, and, and then again taking the predicted levels of expenditure, which line up very well with what what they kind of had been in 2015, 16. Well, who would have be been those groups that are most impacted, and what what's the kind of the weekly or the annual loss in, in terms of the change in prices brought about, assuming that behaviour remains constant, mm-hmm. um, and. and that kind of again was is, is maybe provide some of those headline figures that that we had in the report which is about you know recent price increases for example leaving uh households on average 22 uh, euro or 21 euro a week worse off uh, in terms of the price the, the amount that they are estimated to spend expenditure and and the price increases le- uh, uh, um, to about that um on average i think that came in about 2.3 percent then of of household income uh of their disposable income the net after tax and transfer income and then, again, we could look at the gradients in terms of the, the, the effects not that. So, higher for lower-income households, for rural households, for older households. And again, all, all of that then kind of pointing towards, well, what might you think about that in terms of informing a policy response?
2: Yeah. And just to go back a couple of steps, um, just on the methodology. So, for maybe there's some sort of data nerds here. One of the nice things, though, that you have in the switch model is, like, usually you look at you have maybe the eu silk data and that's a lot really good data on incomes and taxes and all that sort of stuff and more folk on living conditions but more focused on maybe the household incomes as opposed to the household expenditures but you've matched that up imputed expenditures within that data set so you have a methodology to sort of bring that in in in, in the one the one platform so you can look that helped with this analysis, I suppose.
3: Yeah, and I suppose that that's one issue that lots of kind of the household detailed household income surveys, like Silk have had over recent years, is that they don't collect information <clears throat> on expenditure, um, and that limits what you're able to say about indirect tax changes, for example, if you're interested in looking at them or. Price changes in terms of inflation, or, or or specifically energy, and and so really what what we did was we adopted an approach that had been undertaken. The literature there's you know lots of assumptions and caveats kind of built into it, but broadly speaking, gets you a kind of a distribution of of expenditure that matches what we think what we think it should should look like, and then allows you to to to, to take that and. and do then simulations of of the impact of various price changes or the impact of policy responses, um, taking into account, I suppose, the, and, and up to date the latest information that we have in silk. So again, it's the type of thing that policymakers find very uh, very very useful. There's you know it's not particularly maybe novel in terms of the the the, the, the metallurgical contribution or the or, or the kind of the research thing. There's kind of you know lots of lots of papers have tried to do this over the years, and we're just kind of following them and doing that, but really trying to trying to get it up to the minute and and um, to, to be useful then for, for policymakers to consider their yeah. their responses.
2: So then so then at that point you have like in the one data set, like this is crucial for the analysis like this. You have one data set, you have profile of households, you've profile of representative profile of their incomes and then representative profile of their expenditures, and then you can bring in the new price the, like update the prices up to the present day with the methods that you just described and um, and then see how it affects different households in different of different income levels and different groups and like socioeconomic sort of breakdown and and things like that. Uh, Was there anything, Michelle, can you think of anything that that struck out to you as being particularly interesting or insightful in terms of the distribution of the effect?
4: In terms of one thing that struck me was that uh, rural households were much more affected when motor fuels were uh, accounted for. We see that as an impact of their weekly disposable income that um, it accounts for 10% of their weekly expense share, whereas for urban households, it accounts for 26%. So there's nearly 4% difference between urban and rural households. And in terms of public transport, um, perhaps rural households don't have the same options available to them that urban households would have in order to mitigate the impact of increasing prices of motor fuels.
3: One thing that maybe just to to, to build on that, um, one thing that's come out in previous ESRI research, so work by I think Sean Lyons and Richard Tull and others, and then also we picked up on I in a previous paper looking at the carbon tax. But amongst those urban uh, or those rural households who are particularly badly impacted, most of that kind of. A higher average loss tends to come from those who are driving quite far distances so if you kind of you know if you if you if you look at the number of kilometers that the households who are worst impacted are driving unsurprisingly it it is very large share so they look like they're living in rural areas commuting long distances so not just to to Dublin but to Limerick or to Cork or to Galway seems seems to be most part and and again that previous ESRI research has looked at that more specifically about the commuting patterns and showing that there are these kind of subgroups in rural areas who drive very far, so the, the people in rural areas who are just i suppose going around going down to to, to local That's town true. or village or shops they, they they do drive more, but really they don 't they 're not kind of as adversely impacted by the by, by, say, carbon taxes or by fuel prices, it's where really those heavy losses are being driven by are those people who are are driving the far distances. And then in in a way, that's kind of, you know, if we move to this new world of work where people are able to drive less far, there's going to be some people, not everyone, but there's going to be some of those people who are able to maybe mitigate uh, uh, um, how much they have to drive. Um, either by virtually being able to work from home or in a local hub or or whoever. Uh, but then there's going to be other groups who aren't, right? And, and I suppose kind of bearing in mind the heterogeneity and the, the variation within, you know, it's not it's not a homogenous group of rural households and urban households. There's kind of groups within each of those where, where some are more affected than others. And, and again, thinking about why the reasons for that is and what then might be the best, what, what then that tells us about how government should respond is also kind of something to, to I suppose, the report gives a bit yeah. to, to think about
2: yeah absolutely we're moving on to maybe further research but one thing that's interesting there is that you have certain people who have to drive longer distances um maybe for work but you i wonder how that's correlated with income then so the people who are driving further are they more likely to have more higher incomes or not maybe if you're traveling to dublin you'd imagine incomes might be higher but um that's not necessarily going to be the case but uh
3: yeah and, and there'll be you know there'll be many people particularly maybe say if they're working construction on a project on a site that's very far away, and they might have to go far or working in hospitals or 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 like which tend to be congregated in maybe more urban settings so there's there's going to be really a range across there so there'll be some some higher income folks those who are drawing far distance, but there also will be many others who who, who aren't and and yeah, suppose fair. but then again and that that kind of you know, the the extent to which people are able to switch, there's probably also likely a a, a correlation with income there, right? And that the, the type mm-hmm. of service jobs w- which are more readily remotable uh, if that makes sense are, are are maybe likely to be the 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 those higher income ones, whereas the the ones where there is less scope for switching is is perhaps uh, at least in the, in the short term, are you know, are, are maybe those people working in in hospitals or the types of jobs which are, lo- are located in an urban re- uh, area, but and, and, and aren't so much, aren't so remotable.
2: That's oh, that's a very interesting point. It would be interesting to see the census data on yeah. Travel to work.
3: And that will be really exciting, I suppose, as that data comes out. Because again, the data that we're all we have been relying on, uh, um, is, particularly at the census level, is pre-COVID, and yeah. we don't we don't really fully know how people's patterns of work or even accommodation have changed in response to those. There's many. There does, seem, you know, you hear anecdotally of many people living back where maybe their parents are from or where they're from originally, and um, but we don't really know the extent to which that's happened. And I suppose the, the, you know the census is. Going to be our be- our best uh, uh, source of data for for looking at that and how that's changed. But but again, that will only tell us relative to twenty sixteen. So we won't be able to pinpoint the impact of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But but there will be more information from that, and um, yeah. that'll be really interesting to see. Uh,
2: Michelle, did you have some thoughts on that? I wonder. Yes.
4: Yeah, so just in terms of the distributional impact, we see that as a percentage of their disposable income, those in lower income quintiles were much more adversely affected, whereas in terms of absolute income, it was those at the higher income quintiles. But DC thought they have higher incomes, perhaps they're better able to absorb the cost of increasing fuel prices, whereas we see because it's more of their disposable income for the lower income groups, it's impacting on their daily life perhaps more. So, we see after, again, after fuel, uh, um, motor fuel costs are incorporated, that 5.9% of the after tax and transfer income of the lowest income fifth of households is impacted, compared to 3.1% of the highest income fifth. So, it's, there really is a strong distributional impact of these rising costs.
2: Yeah. And the big thing here is it's as a proportion of income, I suppose. So, like, whilst you have maybe those who are more well off tend to drive a bit more or tend to bigger houses that need more heat, this sort of thing. when you take it as a proportion of income, which is more of a measure of the burden, it's felt more harshly maybe on on those who are in lower incomes uh so that was I suppose that's thinking about the the gradient, but the other aspect then is maybe when we talk about energy poverty and the numbers who are in in energy poverty and maybe it's worth sort of. Refreshing. what we mean by energy poverty. So one thing about energy poverty is there's many ways to quantify it and to look at it. And there's, there's a whole... <laughs> like, you could spend the whole time talking about how, how do you measure it and what's the best way to measure it. And no matter what way you measure it, you're going to capture some households and you're going to maybe leave out some households. And I think the best way to think about it is not necessarily the X amount are in energy poverty. It's more a case of this has changed by certain amounts. Therefore, it gives us an indication of the, of the direction of travel and maybe the magnitude of of, 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 of that, that, that direction. So the measure we use is um, 10% income threshold, so 10% of your disposable income or more spent on energy services in the home. And when we think, talk about energy, we mean solid fuels, gas or electricity um it doesn't include motor fuels so it's more focused on maybe heating and other sort of services within the household and if it's more than 10 percent of your disposable income well then you're you're deemed to be in energy poverty and this is like this is a very transparent metric it's one that it's probably one of the early first metrics that that was brought into play Um, and it's one that most people can under can readily understand um but i suppose the big thing the big finding is that it's changed by such a so such an extent from the 2015-16 figures. Uh, Barrett, do you want to take us through maybe how things have changed.
3: So, so, as you say, that you know, there's a load of different ways you can measure this, and in a way, all these measures can have a shortcoming. But uh, again, what, what's kind of, I suppose, key is just how much it is the change rather than the level necessarily. And so, what our estimates and simulations suggest is that, whereas back in 2015-16, it was about you know 13% or so who who were, had spent more than 10% of their disposable net income. on on these energy services. If we look at that kind of figure for now, taking into account the price increases that we've seen up to April, we estimate that that is more like 29%. So, you know, whether... You know the 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 baseline is you know we will capture some people who maybe spend a large amount heating their home um, or because you know they, they they run a lot of electrical appliances because it includes electricity. Leaving us and and, and they might also exclude some people who don't spend more than ten percent because they can't afford to and they can't afford to keep their home adequately heated, even spending you, you know you know uh, um, uh, that that amount. So. Really, then, what I think the key the key takeaway and that we're trying to highlight is is that just how big that increase has been um over such a short period of time and it you know the, the, the so 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 that is really down to the the increase in energy prices we've seen in recent months, which are really, really sharp. By both, I suppose, you know, historical standards, um, you know, kerosene uh, 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 um, has always jumped around with the price. Like it fell dramatically during the the start of lockdown, then it kind of bounced back, and as you know, that that's been the largest increase seen in that. Which also goes some of the way to explaining the impacts on, on rural versus, I suppose, urban households. But but then we've also seen these big increases in electricity and gas prices of kind of you know more you know more than a third, almost uh, by half for electricity through to April, and gas prices just above that. Um, um, and, and so these really big price increases are undoubtedly impacting on households' incomes. And, you know, if we take that measure of energy poverty, which, again, the government has kind of used uh, uh, fairly regularly over the past few years, it does suggest that there is there is a big share, a big increase in the share of households who are experiencing some kind of har- um, hardship or, or a burden of those costs on their uh, uh, um, in terms of being able to heat their home.
2: So, OK, I suppose the final step then of the paper was to sort of think about... Um, well, what can okay, we have this increase in energy poverty these costs are substantially uh burdened on on a certain proportion of households. How do we um best address this and when I think about like the energy crisis, like I think about it in three sections I think about it in short, medium, and long term, and in medium and long term, you know it's more a case of uh how do we sort of maybe move away diversify away from fossil fuels how do we maybe try and bring energy prices down um, so that we, we we pass the peak and it's more at a more sustainable level. And that's probably a, a case of, well, the, in the medium term, diversifying away from st- or finding new supplies to, to fill the gap when it comes to we're no longer getting a lot of our fuels from Russia. But in the longer term, then it's perhaps diversifying away from fossil fuels altogether. But in the short term, we're hit with this shock. It's very hard to dig up pipes and move them around we're stuck with this supply shock and then it's a case of this is what I suppose the the country has to bear how do we distribute that and uh, maybe the policy priority in that circumstance is a case of well we want to make sure that everybody has enough resources to meet their basic needs and one of those being to hit the home and so Barra do you want to take us through maybe the methods and the things we look at?
3: R- really, it, it's worth thinking about, well, what, what's the medium to long-run response and what's the short-term? And in a way, I suppose it would be good if the short-term response doesn't make the medium to long-term response harder. And from that point of view, then, one of the things that you may be, and when we kind of maybe spent quite a lot of time on this in the paper talking about, well, why you might want to avoid cutting indirect taxes on fuel. Um, and, and so one reason for that is that you you kind of weaken the incentive to, to get that adaption um, to, uh, to diversify away from... Uh, uh, di- the, the fossil fuel sources towards maybe more green te, uh, tech, uh, energy sources, but also then in terms of the you know energy saving technology in the home or even energy saving behaviour. If you're cutting indirect taxes, for example, fuel uh, VAT on fuel or or excise duties, you're really kind of dampening down and weakening that price signal that uh, 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 and the information in that price signal that's been being sent out. So. In, in a way, that's one reason in of itself to stay away from those kind of indirect tax cuts. But a second, and one thing that we kind of point on the paper is that well, they're not particularly well targeted to those being worst affected. So, as Michelle mentioned, uh, that's lower income households uh, 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 um, in particular are are worst affected. But if you were to to you know cut VAT on um, home uh, <clears throat> on energy and uh, um, and electricity, or you were to cut fuel duties, really what our research shows is, is that actually in, in cash terms, a large share of that cost is uh, made up by compensating high-income households. And the reason for that is simply those high-income households spend uh, more on on fuel, so they have, tend to have larger houses and so spend more in absolute terms on heating, on uh, even though it's smaller as a share of their income, but they spend more on that. Or they drive more kilometres because they tend to go more places or have more cars and so tend to you know drive more uh, kilometres. Uh, combined kilometres, I suppose, in the household, and so from again from that point of view, as a, 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 um, in terms of targeting cutting indirect uh, taxes uh, on on fossil fuels it's just not very well targeted towards those who have been most impacted so it does it does provide them with, with some support, but you end up you know for a given cost of a package, much more of that uh, going towards those groups being less affected indeed oh, we, we estimate I think more than half of the cost of cutting fuel duties of cutting vat on uh, um energy and electricity, uh, you know electricity that really goes disp- disproportionately to uh, um yeah, or a, a large share of that towards those higher income groups and so leave you with less to to um, target or support those uh, at the bottom of distribution, where, as you kind of say, Niall, that you might be more concerned about the, being able to have money for the bare necessities of life. And, and similarly, we know from research the Central Bank and others have done that also higher income households tend to have more savings accumulated and so have a bit of a financial buffer there, which tends not to be the case for those at the bottom of distribution. So there, there isn't necessarily savings that can be drawn on or a huge amount of savings that can be drawn on. So that, that you know, if then it is your your goal or your objective to protect those being maybe most affected and have least capacity to to adapt, that does suggest that you might want to maybe target those measures and then in doing so that do support providing support through indirect tax cuts is not a particularly sensible way forward. Um, yeah. and, and so instead then we point and maybe Michelle can say a bit about this, uh, about the alternatives that the government might look at. So be that, you know, kind of more, more changes on the, the, the welfare side of things or the direct tax system.
4: So We looked at Christmas-style social social welfare bonus, which we saw this um, benefited those in the lower income quintile and those um, at risk of poverty because their incomes tend to be lower and these are the groups that we want to target because they're more at um, risk of feeling the burden of energy poverty. Same with the doubling of fuel allowance, This um, uh, benefits people with lower incomes and um, perhaps not as well targeted as social welfare bonus because it's um, long-term recipients of social welfare that can claim the fuel allowance. And also we looked at um, the energy credits, similar to what the government has already done, and we see that this, as a portion of income, it benefits those uh, with in lower income, quintiles more. But in saying that, uh, doubling of fuel allowance or um, Christmas-style bonus actually costs less than the €200 energy credit. So in terms of value for money, um, those first two policies might be better
0: suited.
2: Oh, it's interesting because I think it's intuitive for a lot of people to... um to think of, well, if we adjust the price, it brings us back to where we were, and therefore that's what what what, what could be a good idea. But it okay, we'll go we'll come back to the efficiency effect in a minute. But as you're saying, that tends to like it, it's not without cost. Somebody has to foot that bill, and it's public sector re- or public money that sort of to foot that bill—the taxpayers' money—and that the benefit of that then more a um, greater majority of, uh, in terms of euros goes towards those who are more well off. So, through the tax welfare system helps to target those who need it the most and as you are saying there, Michelle, using some of the tools that are there perhaps helps target those who, who need it the best.
3: Yeah, and I suppose again, it, it goes saying like we, we have quite a sophisticated tax and welfare system that's been developed over a long series of time. Like, sure, there are shortcomings and areas it doesn't reach but, you know, that can be used to much, more accurately target the groups who are disproportionately affected or are most in need um of of this support whereas maybe if you if you're thinking of uh, countries um, where maybe they haven 't got as well established tax and welfare systems, maybe then it might make a bit more sense to think, well okay, maybe we should just look at some kind of cut in vAT or or food lexus like duties but given we have the tax and welfare system that we do, which really is quite sophisticated and can be kind of uh, adapted readily enough to, um, as we saw during the, the the pandemic to really provide support to those households and individuals who particularly need it at a point in time they're, they're, again this research really does kind of go to show that that maybe offers a means of providing that support while mitigating the risk of fueling further inflation, which is something on on policymakers minds and un- understandably that you know as, as you said at the, in, uh, a minute ago now like the the government you know you can 't really compensate all households for the entirety of the loss we are it's kind of a you know a a a change in prices which leaves us as a country worse off because we import the vast majority of our fossil fuel and so really what the government has to decide is how to distribute that loss across the population or how to mediate the distribution of that loss you know it, it it doesn't necessarily it's not deciding it in full or perfectly but it can it can mitigate that it can mediate it and and from that point of view having a sophisticated tax and welfare system is really gives the government actually quite a lot of tools and options to to think about how to do that.
2: We're getting into the nuance here, I suppose, but some of the transfers that you discussed, like it targets it, it does a really it does a pretty good job of targeting most people who are adversely affected, but there are maybe a few groups that perhaps aren't recipients of certain benefits under mm-hmm. some insight into how they might be targeted, I think as well
4: just in terms of long term trends, we've seen higher rates for of fuel deprivation, say for renters and also during the uh, Great Recession, we've seen that much of the rise in, in deprivation rates were driven by those not at risk of poverty and that energy deprivation um, rates. Um, so a good way to target these groups is through the PRSI credit. And this is because you start paying PRSI before you start Um, paying income tax so by increasing the PRSI credit you're disproportionately benefiting renters because these people tend to be younger they tend to earn less and you're targeting those in the second third and also the fourth income quintiles which aren't as well targeted by the social welfare system.
2: Yeah and that's a good bit up the distribution as well when you're uh, targeting these sort of households as well so that's that captures a good a good chunk of the cohort. Um, one thing as well, I suppose, it's somebody who comes to these things through an energy lens, it makes a lot of sense to not distort prices because one thing, like, we're a long way away from a supply shortage, but one thing that helps us with that is the fact that people are more conscious of the high prices and perhaps are cutting back a little bit. There's a bit of a demand response there. And it's better to have that on your side than maybe to adjust prices and then bring us that step closer maybe to... If some if there was another shock or something like that, it's just another tool that you don't have in in, in your arsenal.
3: Yeah, and, and this is something I think now that maybe some non-economists often miss. They kind of go, well, you know, why, why does it matter if you're giving people money to compensate them for a loss? or they're just going to spend it on fuel, any, uh, anyhow. And so, what's the matter? But I suppose really, the 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 point there is that there is a, a income and substitution effect, right? And you can and you you want to almost. Given what given what's happened is out of our control and we want to adapt in the long run and move away from fossil fuels, we want to kind of keep that substitution effect in play, but rather give people the money um, to, if, if we're worried about their uh, their capacity to absorb that change in, in, in prices or to maintain the basic level of living standards that we as a society think is essential, you want to kind of provide them with the income that they can still do that, but that for those who can afford to switch away, that they, that they do. And, and and that's again why it's maybe just a better idea to to provide that support through the, the 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 welfare system or you know lump sum payments or even the the tax system rather than in changing those relative prices and trying to reverse the 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 change that we've seen because again there are some people in in. in uh, um, in, in the country and indeed the economy as a whole, where you want, where you do want them to adapt to that price and use less, and that's kind of with the information that, that that's what the price is telling us that we we should be doing. There's some informational content there that we don't yeah. want to to lose by kind of uh, uh, trying to offset it.
4: And in lo- the long term, it can be once you've removed the VAT tax or reduced the VAT tax, it can be um, difficult to reintroduce it. it can be politically unpopular. So, there is a risk of that happening as well, that the tax, tax is not returning. Well,
3: I suppose maybe just to, to say that, you know, this is just what um, our report last week was just one in a huge range of uh, re- ongoing research projects at the Israel looking at issues related to I suppose climate change, on energy prices, on energy systems, and and and, adaption. and it, it really is like a big part of the work that is is going on at the SRI at the moment. Um, just just to flag some of the work now that that you and others at the SRI sure. are doing, uh, not 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 just those who kind of like dip our toes in for the on on the on the price increases or carbon tax things every now and again. That some of you, yeah. some of you people are kind of doing lots of ongoing stuff. So you know, if you want to tell us about some of the work well, that's kind of ongoing there, yeah, sure.
2: <laughs> uh, there is some work ongoing to try and look at energy poverty in a more detailed way, like one of the missing pieces here is that we don 't know we don 't know a profile of the efficiency level of the house. If you add in that piece alongside the sort of income stuff that we 're doing here, well then you can really understand maybe perhaps what is the best response, for example, is it a cash transfer? Is it an income constraint that 's going on here? Is it more of a case that it 's a you know, building materials constraint, and then you can sort of target the intervention. You can target the cure that suits the, the illness, I suppose. Um, and that's something that's really difficult to understand is that to what extent is it, you know, buildings versus income that drives these sort of problems. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we can, we can get a better handle on that. But thanks, Barry, for that prompt.
3: Uh, <laughs> no, always happy to help uh, you flag your uh, ongoing research. Uh,
2: yeah, yeah, I don't know. Well, maybe it might, it might be podcast already. We'll see <laughs> how, how that goes. Uh, okay, guys, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us on, Al.